Thanks so much for being here, everyone. It really is very, very fun to be here. I've, I'm, uh, you know, we've planted a church. Can I just, just to give myself context, how many of you weren't there last Sunday? Because I am continuing from that, and I just want to know, okay, okay. And those of you sitting on the ground, you're very brave, because you obviously got a great booty potential. You, you've got great booty staying power. Um, but uh, I am just taking notes because we've got a little community. Um, the average age is around 23 to 25. And I keep telling them, why don't you go to a church that's got a cool, hip, young, sexy pastor, you know? Why do you want to come to an old grandpa? And they do hang around. No, I've, I've, and Costa Mesa does have some cool, sexy, hip pastors with big red beards. But I mean, I, I don't... I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I just, you know, my hairline's receding. The only thing I've got in favor of me is a little goatee that kids like. You know, they're all ah, you know. They all want to touch the ghost. So, it really is great to be here. It really is. So, I'm taking some notes. Uh, we're definitely going to go back. We, our children's ministry is one, meaning we have one child that's eight months old. So, this is the time to have camps because you don't have a kid's ministry, you know. It makes life so much simpler. Um, I wanted to say that uh, for Meryl and I, it's an absolute privilege and joy to be here. You know, 42 years ago, we came to Christ. We came to faith. For four decades, we've walked with Jesus. And uh, I can say truthfully, I love Him more now than I ever have. And I love the church more now than I ever have. And anything that we could make by way of contribution... I would love it to be that you love Jesus more and you love the church more. Um, Forty years, our third church that we're leading, plus working with churches around and about, um, with all of its enigma, curiosities, crazinesses, uh, it's still his bride. And when I dare get a bit grumpy about her, I think of my two daughters who I had the privilege of walking down the aisle and giving them away to someone bigger than me. It's all wrong, you know, they should be shorter than me. But um, it was this, this overwhelming sense that uh, for Nas, poured 18 years of my life into her. For Dana, 25 years of my life. Dana was a bit more harder. 25 years of my life into her. And, um, and now two men come along who will love them better than I could and take them further than I could. And the church is beautiful. Don't be affected by the pain she's caused you, by the hurt she's inflicted on you. Don't be distracted by the things that have been done and never, uh, forgiveness has never been asked. It's just not worth it. She's beautiful. We're still trying to live for her. Jesus died for her. And so to see all of you, I stood around the fire last night, very tender, watching all of you tell stories. I think it's been a neglected art form in the life of the church, and um, to see it in full swing, to see the joy, the wonder, the freedom, the celebration of Jesus' stories is a beautiful thing. So well done, everyone. Great privilege to be here. My love, did you want to say something? You had your Bible open? Are you sure? funny because when he asks I can say no and then I say God is that you and then when he says yes then I have to say yes (laughs) 
Um, you know, in worship, we were speaking about all my hope is in you. And as I was standing there, I just remembered so many worship moments where it was really based on me, if that makes sense. Like my worship to God was based on how I had been that week, what the week had looked like, how much time I'd spent with God, how much I'd loved my husband or not loved him. And, you know, so I came into worship with almost like an understanding of, oh God, I'm not worthy, you know, to worship you today. And then I would be like this in worship. Or if I'd had a good week, I was like, whoo, you know. And I just was standing there thinking, you know, that the story of Jacob and Esau who, you know, Isaac loved, it's not a good parenting model, so don't do this, but, you know, Isaac loved Esau, and um, the, was it Rebecca? Rebecca loved Jacob. Anyway, long story, you know the deception that they did, and so the dad blessed the oldest son, I mean, the younger son, thinking it was the oldest son, so it was totally deceptive, and once he had blessed him, that was it. There was no taking back of that blessing, And for you and I, and this story has honestly revolutionized my worship and just my my walk with God. For you and I, when we are in Christ, that's why it says, all my hope is in you, Jesus. Because when we are in Christ, we, like Jacob, wear the older brother's clothing. And our older brother, Jesus, puts on his robe of righteousness. He covers us in his robes of righteousness. And so when I come before the Father, it's not my week that's important. It's not how I think I'm doing in God. It's because my older brother, Jesus, has clothed me and I'm in Christ. So all my hope is in him. So when I come to worship... I'm clothed in Jesus. I have the fragrance of Jesus all over me because he clothed me. So my heavenly father is irresistibly drawn to bless me. And when he blesses me, he blesses me with a full inheritance that I have in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? It just, it revolutionized because I used to just, it used to be up and down, up and down. And now I just come to God. It's not me. It's the fact that I'm in Christ, all my hope is in him. Thanks, Paula. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So on Sunday, I introduced the idea of the Socrates idea of the good life. Uh, a brief history just to bring everyone up to speed. Uh, we got this young community. We hadn't done a book together. We hadn't studied our way through a book, dialogued, conversated around a book together. So we thought, why don't we do Ephesians? It's six chapters are exquisite rich in detail, full in content, makes much of Jesus, and um, that would be appropriate for our little community that God's putting together in a, in a collage and an array of diversity and, and, um, and super fun. But I began to ask the why question. Why did Paul write to Ephesus, the church there? And the obvious answer was because he planted the church. Well, that's kind of a good answer, but Toyota uses five whys when wrestling through management questions. Uh, why, 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 why? So I asked the second why question. Well, the second why question was not only was he father to them and he loved them, but he was in prison for their sake. So that's the second good why reason. But then there had to be a third one, and he was answering 
some of the questions they were asking. The problem with the epistles, it's a bit like listening to a cell phone conversation, but you can't hear what the other person is saying. And so my curiosity is, what is the other person saying? What are the Ephesians wrestling with that would have Paul write the things that he was writing? And so I'm a history grad, so I went back and started reading up around Ephesians history. And uh, five things leapt out to me at the city of Ephesus. The first was its great political influence over the area. At one stage, it was the third largest city after Roman Alexandria to exert political influence on the Roman Empire. The second thing was its socioeconomic punch. People went to Perth, I mean not to Perth, to Ephesus, not through Ephesus because they wanted to make a mocheros. They wanted to make the dollar. They wanted to go there and become rich. And uh, it had a great draw and appeal because of the crossroads, economic hub of the region. Uh, it was at that stage a harbor into the ocean, etc., etc. And then it became more interesting because what else I found in my study was the theater of 24 to 25,000 people, which was initially used for the arts and then became a, a gladiator center. And, and then my, my mind got going. We're in L.A. with all of the arts and the influence that the arts and sports brings to a culture, prevailing, shaping, forging, forming the culture, silly money being spent on good athletes, disproportionate to life and life's value, who don't know what to do with it except buy another Bugardo, another million-dollar car. Socioeconomic influence. The theater. And then the library, which came a little bit later, just so that I walk with integrity, but instantly I was aware of the fact that uh, they had a library of 1,200 to 1,500 scrolls. It was a huge space. So that meant learning was a high value. To get a degree or its equivalent in the day was a high value to the Ephesians. And then the last piece to it was the Temple of Artemis um, and this incredible structure, much larger. If you've been to Athens, much larger. It was one of the great uh, wonders of the, of the ancient world. And twice a week, they would worship their way through Ephesians, Ephesus, uh, letting people know, basically, that uh, this is Artemis of the Ephesians, and uh, we worship her. It was very public. It was very imposing. It was very influential. You went to her to get blessing or to curse someone who was turning against you. Now this gave me an inkling of why Paul was writing what he did. Socrates said this. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That is his second most famous quote. The first is the very idea of the good life. I'll read it again. The unexamined life is not worth living. Life, according to him, is not something that is just to be lived. Lived by following blindly and headlong primal instincts, popular convictions, or time-honoring customs. Not following blindly primal instincts, popular convictions, or time-honored customs. The good life is the life that questions and thinks about things. That's what Socrates, in fact, he said, uh, a man who has a bad marriage becomes a philosopher. 
He wasn't a philosopher. He married a beautiful woman. She ended up being a pain in the butt by commentators of the day, and he ended up becoming a philosopher. So if you haven't got a great marriage, philosophy is your future. The good life is a life that questions and thinks about things. It is a life of contemplation, self-examination, and open-minded wandering. The good life is thus an inner life, the life of an inquiring and ever-expanding mind. Now, I want to ask this of you, and then we're going to have some fun conversating around it. I realized that we are all shaped by how we have been um, marinated. Let me just get to this part. We ha- it's been leaked into us, this picture of the good life. I'm an Afrikaner, grew up in an Afrikaans home. The good life is the man is boss. He is the head of his home, but he's way more than that. He's in charge. He, when uh, my dad would come home from work, he would sit down, he'd say, Elsa, a beer, and my mother would bring him a beer. That was the good life. My mother would give him food. That was the good life. As kids, we had to tidy up. That was the good life. He would come afterwards, and if there was any water left on the sink, we would all be called back. If there was any dirt on the floor, we would all be called back. That was the good life, because he was El Dulce. He was in charge. He was the godfather in the home. So what did I think growing up? That's what the good life is. So when I was 16, my father said, come, my boy, come and sit down here. My sister was 18. She had to keep helping in the kitchen because everyone knows the good life is the man stops helping in the kitchen because the woman's good life is the kitchen. So, so you hear what I'm saying? So what happens is that subliminally, I know it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's, so, so what happens is that there is a good life crafted in all of our minds. And the moment the good life suddenly is confronted with the gospel, there is war in the heavenlies. No one has sat us down and said, this is what the good life looks like. But all the way through your life, there is these inklings, these moments, a family oral tradition. What are the stories told around your family table? They are shaping the good life. Who were the heroes? My uncle was a stuntman, one of the first in South African movie industry. He was a hero to us. The fact that he had multiple affairs didn't matter. All that mattered was that he jumped out of bridges, I mean off bridges into moving trains, learned how to stop his horse galloping at full pace and roll so that he could be used in war movies. He was the hero. And so as a young boy, I saw the hero, and I thought, that's the good life. And I peep over his shoulder, and over his shoulder is multiple affairs. So hero equals brave, adventurous, promiscuous. What did the heroes do? Who were you to emulate? Who were you to become like? What was viewed with shame? Don't let anyone ever know. Our families craft a narrative of what the good life looks like. Or, what about the public stories? What is celebrated, honored, revered, applauded in the public space? I enjoy watching TED Talk from time to time. And I just went on just looking to see, is there anything fresh, anything new, anything I should worth seeing? And there was a, a title, something to the effect of receiving comfort from a sex worker. So I knew it was safe to watch it because TED Talk. I wasn't going to see some nude woman jump up or something. So I logged on. 
A woman gets up, very attractive woman, and she starts speaking about comfort and how we all need comfort. And she speaks, and then after about three or four sentences, she says, oh, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm a sex worker, and the broom erupts with applause. What's the subliminal message? Sex work is good. Comfort from a sex worker is good. What is the good life? Go to a sex worker. Are you with me? All of these things are fashioning, shaping, and forging us subconsciously. The father who takes his 16-year-old son out for drinks with friends and then goes to see a stripper. The good life. Newspapers, magazines, TV, movies are all shaping your understanding and mine of the good life. Does that make sense? There's family oral tradition, there's public communication, all of which leaks the idea of what the good life is. What must you put on your resume? What will sell you to your future employee is communicating the good life, the things that matter, the things that have value. How many of you have read David Brooks's book, The Cost of Character? Okay, David Brooks is probably my favorite New York Times journalist. He wrote a book called um, The Cost of Character. Uh, he calls himself a wandering Jew and doubting Christian. He's, very, he's in a very interesting space in his second, his third book now. But in this one, he differentiates between the eulogy virtues and the resume virtues. The eulogy virtues are the things that they say about you when you are dead, at your funeral. Those things are the things he says that matter to life. But what most of us do is we spend our life building our resume virtues, going to the right schools, going to the right colleges and universities, interning at the right businesses and practices, working at the right nonprofits. All of those things shape our resume virtues because the good life has to look like that. When in fact, ultimately, he argues, the good life, and he doesn't use that language, are the eulogy virtues, the things when we've gone, people will say about us. So, what I said to Mark, if it was okay with him, I would love us to get into groups of about three or four people. And I'd love us just to take some time to say, what was the good life that was forged into your mind? And how was it forged? I told the story on Sunday about my granny was fat. And everywhere I've told that story, people go, And then I go on to say, well, I was a child of the 60s, and so Twiggy was the one we were told was beautiful. You had to be a waif, you had to be skinny, you had to be tiny. So it produced a whole multiple generation of people with anorexia and bulimia because a bigger woman is bad, skinny woman equals good because someone put the picture of a skinny English girl on a cover called Vogue and we said, that is the good life. And then, of course, Kim Kardashian came and blew all that out the water. You need big boobs, big booty, and a narrow waist. Because that's now what is beautiful. Are you with me? So, what I love about Ephesians is that it creates the alternative narrative. It's the mirror 
to what Ephesus was presenting as the good life. And in order for us to understand what Paul is teaching us today in Perth in the 21st century, we have to understand what is fighting it, what is resisting it, what is the thing that is combating our notion of of Jesus' followership and the wonder of the gospel and transforming us to become like him. Your resistance could be personality, but your resistance and mine, obviously, could be the, the, the oral tradition of our family, the public confession of news, media, and the rest that's shaping us all of the time. And I think for us to understand what's crafted our good life, every Thursday we eat with Grandma. You can't have a leaders meeting on Thursday because the good life says we eat with Grandma. Are you with me? So why don't you take a few moments in groups of threes or fours, just talk about the good life. What has sparked you while I've been talking? What is the good life, and how did you reach that conclusion, family or culture?
All right. So what we're going to do is have a little bit of feedback. But what I'd love you to do is to tell us something that someone else said in your group that you found interesting or that is a wonderful thing but can be a hindrance to the gospel. Because the counter to the, gospel, to the good, good life is the gospel life, obviously. It's the life that Jesus has uh, given to us that Paul so elegantly spends six chapters talking about. So what did someone say in your group that caught your attention? If they are free to do that, says the therapist. All right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that makes, what makes gospel living difficult in the light of that? So if you come in, and you've had 25, 27 years of perception is more important than reality. You were very honest last night around the fire. Uh, I'm assuming it's not your story, but it might be. Um, I mean, in terms of this point. So that makes it really difficult for someone to now suddenly become transparent and to say, I need to repent, or there's something in my life, can someone help me? Okay, that's a great one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Wonderful. Well, who else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy yourself. That's a big good life thing. Whatever that means. Enjoy yourself. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Who else? Premium. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Some really good ones. And this side of the room? No. Nothing, nothing. All right. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Stas is still getting over his wound of. Um... 
His mother's poisoned my lunch, but besides that, it's, everything's fine. Yeah. The word, yeah. 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 Now, do you understand, everyone? Do you understand how all of these are quite compelling? Enjoy life, compelling. Acquire knowledge, compelling. Be a little cynical, compelling. You know, and so we go around. Sorry, my love. Adventure. These are all compelling. But what have they done? They've replaced Christ as the central focus. They're offering the good life rather than the gospel life. And so we, we buy into it because we don't know any better. And suddenly the gospel gets presented and our instinct is to re, uh, rebuttal. Because it isn't what I was taught. It isn't what was valued. Stash. Yeah. 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 It's so close to what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. We just say love ourselves, then we love our neighbors. It's very close. Yeah. 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 It's well worth marinating in. Honestly, if you have some time, think about it, and especially in the city, Perth, because you, some of you are local, some of you have moved in, and it's that overriding, the, the Temple of Artemis, whatever that is to Perth, that overshadows the city and shapes the city. It could be the beach culture. It could be the sense of adventure. It could be the sense that every weekend I go somewhere else. All of which, none of that is necessarily bad. But when it clashes with gospel life, which we'll get to in a moment, um, I think that's when it begins to offend us and pebble in the shoes us a little bit. We just can't shake it. Jesus is the rock of offense. He's the stumbling stone because we trip over him because what we have been schooled and groomed in is not what the gospel living is. Chapter 1, and I don't have time to go through what we've already covered, but can I say this? When you read chapter 1, which we all have many times, aren't you startled by the transcendent reality of it? Aren't you startled by the exquisite reality that Paul as a father is crafting his children and saying, remember this, effectively, not just that we adopted into his family and we live according to his purpose, but eternity matters. My father never sat me down, and this isn't bag on your dad moment, but, but he, he's a construction worker, and he came to Christ years after I did. But, but he never sat down and said, my boy, remember, what really matters is eternity. This is a burp in time. 
Every decision, it isn't just worked out now, here and now. It has, it has eternal implications, not with a finger of judgment or fear, but the honor and the privilege of grace that I can live a life that has eternal implications, that every person touched with love, every person embraced with grace, every person wrapped up in mercy has eternal implications. And that's why we live a life based on God's purpose and God's will. My father's good life was cowboys don't cry. The world doesn't know you're a living boy. Every time my grades went down, that was the speech I knew it was coming. I kind of sat down and hit me, you know. The world doesn't know you're living. You've got to get out there and your sisters are going to get married and they'll have a husband to look after them. That's what my dad said. But you, son. So what was he? He wasn't communicating a bad thing. Your wife and your kids will be dependent upon you. But it wasn't a transcendent thing. That this has eternal implications. The beauty, wonder, and mystery of eternal ramifications is the first introduction to a gospel life. That I know there is a transcendence. So many of the authors, I've, I've reams of quotes I could give you. Of authors who are grasping, not even Christian authors, who are grasping with transcendent reality. What does it look like? What is life hereafter? Is it simply I die and then I'm dust? Or is it something more exquisite? And Paul says, you become sons and daughters of the Most High God. All that happens down here has implications up there. And we know up there could be down here. But that's another theological debate. The second chapter deals with the good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. And two things I want to say about that by summary, and then we'll do chapter 3 and 4 quickly. The good works, when you read chapter 2, are set in community. If you look at Paul's writings, he speaks in that context about the church, about us being a, a nation, fellow citizens, of us being a, a temple, a holy building. It's community. And in our modern world, the good life is offered to us as highly individualistic. Live your dream. Be who, God, be who you want to be. All of that kind of stuff, folks. And what it does is it doesn't prepare us for a life together. The gospel life is a life. To, it's not just a solitary faith. It's a social faith, one commentator said. Christianity has a solitary component, yes it does, where I'm alone with my Heavenly Father and I go and be with Him during the night to wake up early in the morning. I love that. I just happen to wake up early for reasons I never fully understand. But there's nothing more wonderful for me. I wake up, I stumble downstairs, my hair's like this. I've got a beautiful espresso machine which Meryl bought for me, oh gosh, I don't know, decades ago it feels like. And I have my coffee, and I have my banana, and I have my water, and then I go and sit on my couch, and I've got my Bible, and I've got my journal, and I write in there, good morning, Father. And I'm devoting myself to Him. I love that moment. I, 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 I pray by splashing. I start off by praying for me, because boy, do I need prayer. And then I let it splash to Meryl. And then I let it splash to my kids, my grandkids. And then I let it splash into um, our kind of soft leadership team. We're so young, we, as a church, we don't have... And the, then the individuals, and I let God, let me pray prophetically. Who does He bring to my attention? Who must I pray for today? What must I pray for? And then Genesis Collective, the leaders, 
uh, that, that lead that collective, etc., etc. Yes, it's solitary, but most of our faith is lived out socially. And that is an offense to a modern Western secular mindedness that we've been schooled in, into. So much of what we do, which we'll get to in a moment, is for social rather than solitary reasons. You know, and then the good works. A little story about Nass, which um, in a way she was oblivious to. But um, when uh, she was 10, when we moved to America, and uh, she turned 13, it was the era of the boombox, so I went to Best Buy, and I was still marginally awed living in America by endless options. You know, South Africa was so simple, you had three to choose from, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And here I'm just standing with rows of these boom boxes, $67 to $1,200 or whatever. So I've got my cell phone, I'm on the phone to Meryl, we, we collaborate, we do life together. So I'm saying, babe, which one do you think I should get? So she tells, she asks me, well, what do you see? So I say, well, I start with Phillips at $67 or whatever, all the way down the aisle. But in my heart of hearts, I'm drifting to the right. I'm wanting to get the $500 or the $700 one. And Meryl says, well, have you prayed? Doesn't it irritate you when your spouse asks you, have you prayed? I mean, it's the most obvious thing, but because she said it, I'm instantly irritated. Like, I'm a man of God, sister. I mean, don't mess with me. I can hear the Holy Spirit, okay? So I'm going down, and as I am standing at blooming Best Buy with the shelves, endless shelves of boom boxes, I say, Lord, which one? And I, as clear as I hear the voice of the Lord, he says to me, it's not what you can afford to pay, but it's what she can afford to receive. And I'm like, bummer. See, because the picture, the narrative in my mind was this. Birthday morning, she opens up, and there's that five, six, seven hundred dollar boombox. And she looks at me, and what does she say? You are the best dad ever. And I can't wait to show my friends. What is it about? It's about me and my ego, isn't it? Isn't it about me being the best dad ever? It's got nothing to do with her in a way. And the Spirit of God says to me, it's not about what you can afford to give. It's about what she can afford to receive. So I make a decision. I think it was 120 bucks or whatever it was. And I buy it and, and wrap it. And the next morning, go through, as is our custom, Meryl makes the cake. And we all walk through and we sing happy birthday and we love her and we bring the gifts. And it's a big family fiesta. And I'm watching closely because Nas, you can see life through her eyes. And I'm watching closely because I'm looking to see the disappointment. Like, really, Dad, is that the best? Is, is, is that it? Is that what you can give me for my 13th? I don't see that, of course. I just see the joy. And afterwards, I'm all insecure. I go to Meryl and say, babe, what did you think? Do you think she loved it? And then Meryl has to serve my very bruised ego. And I say, oh, I can take it back and I can get a better one, you know. And um, she seemed legitimately happy. Ten years later, we are in Hocking, or wherever you stayed up there. And I remember opening the, the grocery cupboard, and there was hardly thing, anything in there. And it was as if the Spirit of God says to me, God speaks to me in phrases. He says, now do you understand? And in my mind, instantly, I knew what he was speaking about. 
He was speaking about that moment where I stood at Best Buy's and I wanted to buy the $500 one and I bought the $120 one because it was about God preparing her for good works that he had in advance for her. When she would be the wife of a church planter, the mother of four little kids with shekels to work with, not knowing when she puts her her card in whether there's enough money to buy groceries. What good would it be if I lavished her with a whatever lifestyle, I wasn't preparing her for the good works God had set aside in advance for her to do, where she could take from nothing and make a meal of something. Are you with me? That's the gospel alternative. And I'm not trying to look good because I really didn't feel good at that time. Thank goodness God is kinder than my ego. But you see, folks, when we are driven by the world and the world says, Buy what your friends buy their kids. Give them what their kids. My son turned 16 at a private school, and uh, uh, we couldn't afford to get him a car. So many of the other parents were getting new, giving the kids new Jeeps and, I mean, Hummers. I mean, it was crazy. You go to the, the school parking lot, and there's this array of cars. And, and, and he's got, honestly, a, Meryl's old car. It's got a cracked Passat. It was cracked windshield. Um, the, there was something else that I can't remember. And you know what? He got in there, as long as his surfboard fitted, he got in there and he drove to school and he parked his car at school. My fatherly ego was being battered left because I wanted to go. I thought I'll go and lease a car so that he would feel good about himself. What good is that? Am I preparing him for the good works God has in advance for him? We parent not through the good life, we were taught, we parents through the gospel life, which is a life preparing people for what God has for them down the road. Does that make sense? Okay, very quickly, chapter 3 and chapter 4. I want to highlight um, a couple of things. And remember we said we can't go through it verse by verse. Time does not allow. I want to, I want to draw you into the conversation. I want you to marinate. I want you to, to read the magazines and newspapers and books And I want you to read through the lens, what is the good life they're telling me to live? All the parenting books, you are so young, and so many of you are dating and getting married and having kids. What are the books you are reading? Are they teaching you to parent gospel, or are they teaching you to parent good life? And it's a massive difference. And the gift you give your children is the gift of a gospel life that's far more compelling, far more lasting and far more wonderful. I said to my kids growing up, eat what is set before you. That's what the Bible says. I'm not a legalist. If there's a rule, I want to break it. I find great joy in breaking every rule I can find. But, but, but when I read that in the Bible, I don't read a rule. I read something far more exquisite because I want to prepare my kids that one day they can sit with kings and queens and know how to work the cutlery or they can sit in a village in Africa and share a common pot. And not, oh, no, I don't eat that. Oh, yuck. See, oh, no, it's fine, dearie. You don't have to eat that. I'm just thinking, honey, you're teaching him good life. You're not teaching him gospel life. Gospel is you are more important than I am. I will eat your food with appreciation, honor, and respect. Good life is only eat what you want to eat. Why did the room go so quiet? Maybe I should carry on. Read something else. All right, chapter 3. Grab your Bibles, please. 
chapter 3. I'm reading from the NIV only because Dana and Stu gave it to me for my 60th. I can't pretend there's a cooler reason for it. All right, chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. Now, let's go to the end of the chapter. We're just handpicking key threads and themes that are Paul's alternative to the good life. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And plonked right in the middle of all of that, um, Paul writes this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, verse 16, you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, high, how, how deep is the love of Christ, etc., etc. Now, here we have this collision. The good life tells us prosperity, property, popularity, and power, forgive the alliteration, is the good life. You must get more money, you must get more property, you must get more influence, you must get more applause. That's the good life. Bad is suffering, service, and sacrifice. David Brooks says, we think we want ease and comfort. And of course we do from time to time. But there is something inside of us that longs for some calling that requires dedication and sacrifice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here are the collision pieces. Truth always is held in tension. Whenever there's a truth, there's a corresponding truth in tension. Paul starts off this chapter by saying, I am in prison for your sake. He ends the chapter by saying, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Now, which is it, Paul? Is it prison or abundance? The good life says it's abundance. The gospel life says it's both. The gospel life says you and I live a life that holds those two ingredients in tension, and your life and mine will embrace both as legitimate vehicles for God to do what God needs to do in us and through us. I want to read a quote here if I can find it quickly. Um, Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, in, in 1989, I was in England speaking at an event. Uh, Rob Rufus and I, we were traveling together, and we were having turns speaking. That was just our rhythm. You preach now. I do the next one. And we landed in a place called Marlow Maidenhead, extremely wealthy, opulent, Bentleys. I mean, just fancy, fancy jags in the, in, in the, in the houses and driveways on the, on the river. And it was my turn to preach, and it was a Thursday night. And no matter how I did, I always travel with old sermons. No sermon made any sense to me. So we go to the hall and the worship starts. Rob leans over to me, you preaching? I said, okay. So then I decide I, I'm not getting anything. So I walk outside. It was a schoolyard. And out of the schoolyard grew the tiniest little weed flower. I mean, just this little thing about so big. And this little daisy-like flower. And it was instantly I knew what to preach on. I came back and Rob said to me, you're good to go. I said, I'm good to go. So they introduce us, these two young pastors from South Africa. 
and Rob goes up and does the greeting, and I walk up, and I stand in front of the microphone with this little flower. I don't say hi. I don't greet them. I don't do anything. I just say, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And I'm dying a million deaths. I'm thinking, these rich, wealthy, clever people probably think this is a serious nut. He's blown his brains on dope. You know, he's like, he loves me, he loves me not, you know. By the time I found my way around to the end, I said, that's the way some of you think about the love of God. You're not sure where the petal ends. With one exception, every person, that was the message. It took me about three minutes. Every person but one man who sat at the back, who folded his arms, rushed to the front, kneeled, lay down, wept, cried. Rob and I prayed for hours for people. There were literally piles of people as God encountered them and met with them. Because we cannot hold intention, suffering and abundance as if we have to choose which one. John Wesley lived most of the 18th century. He was born around about 1703, if my memory serves me right, and died at the end of the century. His father was a vicar. His mother homeschooled Susanna, a remarkable woman, homeschooled all the kids. And John Wesley was known as a child for the brand that was plucked from the flames because when he was about six years old, the vicarage came alight. And because they had many kids, the dad thought he'd got all the kids out until they looked up and there was little John standing in the window and the flames were burning up the vicarage so that they couldn't get to him. And it was only neighbors standing on neighbors that were managed to pluck John out. And his mother, a very godly woman who taught them Greek and Latin and English and the Bible, of course, was able to say, this is a brand plucked from the flame. He did what was right and proper and went to all the schools and then got access to Oxford where he started the uh, Holy Club, and they became known derogatorily as the Methodists because of their methodological approach to life, early morning prayers, studying of the scriptures, and the rest. When he graduated from university, he was asked to go to England, I mean to the colonies from England. And he went there, and on the way over, he was on the ship, and they hit an incredible storm, and he panicked with his brother, and he panicked. He said, God, are you going to take my life so early and so young? And to his absolute horror, the Moravians, who were the German missionaries from Herrenhut, were on their knees on the deck worshiping God in absolute peace. And he found himself faltering in fear, angst, and confusion while they were men and women and children of worship and prayer. He arrived in the colonies and he had... had, um, a very specific objective, which was to bring the gospel to the indigenous Indians, the local people, and to pastor a small community. A handful of years later, ladies and gentlemen, he went back to England with his tail between his legs. He was an abject, absolute failure. No Indians responded to his gospel because it was simply a message of higher morality, ethics, and performance. His congregation hated him because he challenged them to a more legalistic approach to life with convictions. They chased him out of town. He fell in love with Sophie. Sophie was his life's love. 
But because he was such a legalist, he could not find the grace or the conviction or the ability to decide to ask her to marry him. And to his horror, she married someone else. And so he refused her communion. (laughs) Under the notion that she had lost her love for Jesus, when actually she had just married someone else. So he would not serve her communion because of his failed love for her. And on the boat back, he mourned his inability to reach one Indian person. His inability to pastor that congregation. His inability to love a woman he loved for the rest of his life. And his inability to find peace as the Moravians did in the storm. I tell that story because it's so easy for us to get to what he did do. John Wesley was a remarkable man, Howard Snyder writes. His life, 1703 to 1791, nearly spanned the 18th century. From the time he began field preaching in 1739 until his death, 52 years later, he traveled some 225,000 miles, preached more than 40,000 times, sometimes to crowds of more than 20,000. At his death, He left behind 72,000 Methodists in Great Britain and Ireland and a fledgling Methodist denomination of some 50,000 people. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, why are you telling us the story, Chris? Because John Wesley discovered a life of suffering and abundance. Does your theology, which the gospel and the cross does, does it allow for moments of suffering and pain that we mysteriously cannot explain. Many a Christian stumble and fall at adversity because somehow, somewhere, someone offered them a gospel which was purely resurrection. There was no cross involved. There was no dying involved. There was no heartache, no bruising, no disappointment, no anxiety towards God, no doubt, no confusion. But if doubt is the gateway to faith, surely doubt is the doorway we must all walk through. And I'm saying that because so often we think doubting is bad. I've never come to any conviction of my own without doubting it first. And I think sometimes we are offered a story that is too flippant, too western, too soft, too easy, too comfortable. As if the very notion of suffering somehow falls outside of Christian vocabulary. We just had to say goodbye to a little baby fell into a pool five days ago and died. I don't understand that. I hear Liam's survival and rejoice with the family. I hear Mike Rigdon's pain and his friend's son fell into a pool and drowned. Sat with a couple in our home a month ago, six weeks ago, Passing through the community, South African couple. 18 month old baby in the bath. She turned to get something when she came back. He was dead. I don't understand that. She carries such shame as she wept 11 o'clock round our table as we shared some cheese and wine and a 
and, and a moment of storytelling. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a very flippant story if it never imbibes the legitimacy of suffering. I'm an optimist, incurable to some, obligated to others. I live a positive, loud, joyous life. But I went through about a decade of darkness unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. It was not for my wife who challenged me like Martin Luther's wife did to get out of bed. I'm not sure if I could have. St. John of the Cross speaks of the dark night of the soul. David writes and he says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I've never contemplated suicide, but I did wonder if for my family it wouldn't have been better if I just go to be with Jesus and they have great memories of me. Paul said, I am in prison for your sake. And is it not interesting, nowhere in the book does he ever ask them to pray to get him out. Nowhere. He says, oh, I pray that you may know him, that your knowledge might grow of him, that you may deepen your love with him, but never does he ask, pray that I get out of this hell hole. Because if you're in that hell hole for someone else, let it take its course. If you're a victim or simply the product of circumstance and you're in prison for another reason. Get me out of here. But if he says, I am in prison for your sake. I'm in prison to encourage you. People in the palace are coming to faith because I am in prison. And it was dastardly. It wasn't Scandinavian. It wasn't conjugal rights with TVs and sanitary circumstances. In fact, there's argument that... Um, Adronicus actually volunteered to go and be with Paul in prison. He volunteered to be imprisoned to serve Paul. And we understand this beauty, this incredible privilege. It's not the good life. No parent ever sits, I think, their child down and said, the good life equals a dank, dark, dastardly prison in Rome. But it's a gospel life. And what if what you are going through and I am going through is for the benefit of someone else? What if my dark night of the soul was in part to do with me, but it was so I could sit and sometimes weep with people who were in there because no one could get me out until it has run its course, until God gave the keys to the jailer. So let him out. If it's gospel life, we, have, we don't have that to fear. It's the overriding privilege that people's lives will be touched and changed because of what we are going through. I never thought I'd have a son. And to an Afrikaner, that was, that broke my heart. And I remember we moved to America. Sorry, Mark, I haven't kept an eye on the time. I apologize. Um, and um, 
I remember kneeling on my bed in Durban. And I said, Lord, I forfeit the right to ever have a son. I'll live for the gospel. And if that's my cross to bear, it is what I will bear. We landed in America in what Merrill calls the tumble-drying effect of the immigrant. We didn't know which was up or down many a day. We just opened our eyes and lived. And I was approaching 40, and a long story I won't tell you about, but I, Merrill and I decided to have our third baby that was here. And um, Tion was born. And I remember kneeling on my bed. I don't know why I'm being quite tender. Um, And I remember kneeling next to my bed with my boy, a week or two old. And I said, Jesus, thank you for my son. But, But I give him back to you now. You've given me a son. He's now yours. And you know, three times the enemies try to kill my boy. Most recent was he was, um, he went camping with friends. He's in university in San Diego. And um, they went camping. And on the way back on the Sunday morning, he fell asleep. It was a hummer, and he didn't strap up. His window was open. And uh, all the other students fell asleep, including the driver on the San Diego freeway. And he wakes, he wakes up when the, when the car hits the side barrier. The young driver overcorrects and goes onto the gravel on the other side of the freeway, overcorrects again. And it's that moment the hummer starts tumbling. My son has no seatbelt on. And he says, Dad, I remember holding on as I saw the asphalt coming. And the next minute, I was standing on the side of the road. And we listened to the story over and over again. And we were on a flight back from South Africa. And as we climbed into the plane in Durban, The Spirit of God said to Meryl, pray for your son's protection. And it was about that time that it happened. I have no explanation for it, but an angel plucked him out of that humber. He had a scratch on the shoulder, a scratch on the opposite back, and a few pebble scratches on his feet, flying out of a hummer at 60 miles an hour. You see, I'd given him back to Jesus. Now, Jesus is business. Ladies and gentlemen, gospel life is different. It's not a life of self-protection and preservation. It's not a life where you're always hedging your bets, where you're always doing the thing that's safest for you, that's the best case scenario for you. You give up the right to that. I do. You do. Planning a church, I'm 57. I shouldn't be planning a church, I'm too old. But it's not for me or about me. Can I tell you it's for? I was going to use the story in chapter 4, but we'll... Let me tell you about Sam. Sam stumbled into our house. We heard her before we saw her. 
She bumbled into the house because we planted in our home. Everyone said to me, when you meet Sam, you'll love her. And I do. But Sam's dad's a hero and addict on the street of Santa Cruz. She doesn't know if he's dead or alive, but reading the police reports to see if he's turned up dead yet. Mother died of an alcoholic. She lived on the streets from the age of 12 till 17. Every now and again, a friend would have her sleep on the couch, a family would. In her senior year at high school, a family took her in, and I quote, it's the first time I had my own bed, I had my own bedroom, and I had the place, I had a place at the table. I had a place at a table. Never had a place at a table before. This family put it through college, university. She starts working for me August 1. But Sam took all her savings about six months ago and brought blankets because she realized that she hoped someone would give her their dignity on the streets of Santa Cruz. And she emptied her little savings account and bought blankets, and she started a high school ministry with a half a dozen girls who she loves every Friday night. I didn't know. I just heard about it. And they wrote little messages inside those blankets that they give to homeless people because she hopes that someone would tell her dad just the fact that he has worth. She's not angry. She doesn't hate her dad. See, ladies and gentlemen, we live in the tension of suffering and abundance. We don't have the rights to a life of abundance if God chooses a journey of suffering for a time. And none of us are exempt. It's a gift. It's a privilege. Because it's for someone else's sake. Can it shape me? Definitely can. The gospel transform me? Of course it can. I look at Sam now, she told her story, like you did around the fire, she told the story at our community, and there was hardly a dry eye. Then I said, Sam, I want you to preach with me. And so she co-preached with me on a Sunday, and the place erupted. There's something deep and profound. Um, I forget which hymn writer said something like, when the rock is cracked, the light shines through. Sometimes we dismiss the power of suffering in the hands of an almighty God to transform us and to change the lives of others. If the good life means ease and comfort, the gospel life means suffering and abundance. John Wesley ended up, and I quote, the most loved man in all of England. When his coffin went down the street, finally, Crowds came and cheered him on and praised God for him. 
But what did he have to go through? He married a woman who would beat him up. Ultimately left him. And he didn't even go to her funeral. Suffering, abundance, the travel companion, the true gospel living. We embrace both. Would you pray with me, please? I don't know what your pain is. I can't pretend to understand, even if I knew you. I don't understand Sam's pain. That at the age of 12, she was doing drugs, alcohol, and whatever else, just like her parents. I can't sit there and say, Sam, I get it. Because I don't. But I do get the power of God's work in her life. She joins us on staff in a few weeks' time. The first staff assignment is working in an orphanage in Africa. How amazing is that? That a dozen of our young people flying to Africa to go and work at Live Village. That's her first job for me. Suffering and abundance.